You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists, and we meet here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, I think we're in agreement that things came down squarely on the wonderful side with the UFC's debut on ABC on Saturday afternoon. Obviously, we will talk about some of those individual fights and some of the fallout from that coming up later on this show. But, you know, considering hashtag everything that's been going on, both inside the sport and outside recently, it seemed to me that this event went off exactly as you would have wanted it to go off if you were the UFC making its debut on a new network. And also exactly how you would have wanted it to go off if you were just a fan sitting at home trying to watch because this this event uh turned out to have some good fights turned out to be a lot of fun all the way around yeah you remember when we were talking beforehand about what you'd be hoping for if you're ufc or the the tv executives on the abc side what you would want to see ideally and how max holloway versus calvin cater seemed like the kind of matchup that was tailor-made for that because is going to go a few rounds probably, and it's going to be an action fight. We could not have imagined at the time that it would be so much what you'd hope for because not only did it go all five rounds and just a ton of action, Max Holloway setting strike total records, throwing basically a strike every two seconds in this fight, which is absolutely insane. But it also is the kind of fight where you can't believe the inhuman amount of punishment that Calvin Cater is able to take. It's not hard to imagine people getting on the old text machine thing to their friends and telling them, you got to turn on ABC and see what this one man is doing to this other man. At the same time, though, don't you always in a situation like this come away going, I wonder if there's anybody out there who was like at the start of this fight, like, huh, this MMA stuff. I've heard a little bit about it. Haven't seen too much of it. Maybe I'll check it out. And then by minute 20 or so is horrified by man's inhumanity to man. Yeah. I mean, it's always a question how the common person is going to take these spectacles, especially when they're going off in the middle of a Saturday afternoon here in America. And you might well be tuning in, hoping to see Antiques Roadshow or something. I don't know what would be on ABC that that time of the day. And instead, you've got uh, you got mixed martial arts fighting happening here. Uh, and I agree that especially as the punishment started to stack up on, on Calvin Cater, maybe the uninitiated, the curious, or the person who thought they were curious might have uh, might have had second thoughts about what exactly they were watching. At the same time, like I guess. It, if you had if you had stuck it out that far, you know, if you had already seen uh, Puna Soriano knock out his opponent in right at the end of the first round, if you had already seen, uh, you know, Alessio De Chirico knock out Joaquin Buckley, if you had already watched Li Jing Leon knock out Santiago Ponzinibbio, uh, you probably knew what you were watching. You probably knew the 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 you know the quality or or the the properties of the of the sport you were you were trying to to uh to take in here if if anything like 
I wonder if it was more people inside the bubble, the MMA aficionado, those of us who have seen lots of these fights who really understood what was going on with Calvin Cater because like he never seemed to ungame, right? He right. never seemed to get to the point where he couldn't fight back. And I wonder like if you were a fan who hadn't seen too much of these, yeah, like the punishment was clearly stacking up. He was all bloody, just, you know, superficially, he didn't look great. But at the same time, I, I wonder like if it, if those kind of sort of like protracted beatings where, where one guy is just chipping away at another guy, I wonder if they, uh, if they touch the same part of the consciousness for people who don't, who maybe don't know exactly what's going on as they do for, for hardcore fans who have been around for a while that maybe understand the, uh, the ramifications of that a little bit more deeply. True. And you know what? If you tuned into that thinking you'd check out this mixed martial arts stuff and then you came away horrified by what you saw in this fight, better you get out now. Yeah, you were never going to like it anyway, yeah, frankly. Because this is never going to be your thing. We we have more horrifying things in store for you if you stick around. <laughs> and and yes. I mean that in many different ways, too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, as you know, right now you're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast proper. We come out every Monday on your timelines and podcast libraries for free. And as you might also know, for the true heads, for the discerning MMA fans who crave their discourse both unfettered and unending... You need to go and check us out over on the co-main event podcast Patreon page. We're over there dropping not one, not two, but typically three additional podcasts every single week just for the beloved patrons of the CME. And that includes the Wednesday live chat, hashtag wild on Wednesday, where all topics are welcome and absolutely anything can happen. Plus the Friday power hour, where we typically take a deep dive into the most compelling MMA topic of the week as well as unleash the most powerful force in all of Fight Sports, the co-main event podcast, Patreon, Power Hour, Power Rankings. It rolls right off the tongue. But that's not all. For the absolute shit-eating wild persons out there who want to support this podcast at the very highest level, man, we got our weekly movie club podcasts. Last week, we watched Hard Times, starring Charles Bronson. A good time was had by all. This week... Ben, we got a hotly contested three-way dance going on over on the Patreon page right now in terms of voting for what what we're going to watch this week on the on the movie club. We got uh, it's Martial Arts Month. I should point out we're doing a whole month of nothing but martial arts movies. So we got we got three options up for the kids at home right now: 1972's Fists of Fury, 1992's Once Upon a Time in China Three, and I don't know if I'm going to say this right: 2010's. Ip Man? Is that how you say it? I guess so. Or is it IP Man? Like like he's I a guy out here trying to get no. the rights to everybody's intellectual property. I think it would be both capital letters. And I think that's a different movie if he's if it's the intellectual property thing. I think this is one about kicking motherfuckers' ass. Yeah, right now, Ip Man 2 and Fist of Fury just in a dead heat. Yeah. To uh to be the the next up for the uh for the movie club. You got twenty two hours left. Right now, Ip Man 2 holding on to a very slim lead over Fists of Fury. So if, if you want to change that, go you can go over and speak your mind. Patreon.com slash co-main event. Go over there and join the team. If you want to do us another personal favor, do me a personal favor, I suppose you could check out my newest novel. It's called The Blaze. It's a mystery and thriller. Entertainment Weekly loved it. They said, in Dundas's assured hands, one man's search for answers makes for a lyrical and riveting meditation on memory. So yeah, you can pick up The Blaze, wherever books are sold, and it would mean the world to me if you would go ahead, pick it up, give it a chance. 
We got music this week as well from our guy Simeo, uh, a.k.a. co-main event podcast listener Alfred Larson. If you like what you hear from him on the show, you can check out more over at soundcloud.com slash Simeo. That's S-E-E-M-I-O in Simeo. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, Max Holloway put on one of the great individual performances in recent memory Saturday on ABC. And in a sea of shittiness, it was that rare moment where we all had something to feel good about. And in round number two, remember when pro wrestling broadcasts used to go off the air with a cliffhanger where one of the announcers would be screaming about if the company's top star would accept a challenge from its biggest villain and we'd all have to tune in next week to find out? Yeah, that's basically what Dana White did with this whole Habib non-announcement announcement thing. And in round number three, Conor McGregor is bringing his $3 million fuck watch to Abu Dhabi to fight Dustin Poirier this weekend. Does the future of the lightweight division hang in the balance? And will the old Connor really show up? Or whatever that means. All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail here go, go, comes to us from Dalton Martin, who writes, I know you guys are excited for the Kiesa Magni fight. Can you show that fight some love on the proper? I have a sinking feeling it's about to get lost in the in the tide here of Max's big night and whatever bullshit unfolds from the Connor Dustin Habib love fest this weekend. And isn't that exactly the kind of shit you'd expect to happen to these guys, these two guys too? discourse? Uh, you know, that might be a uh, a solid point here that Dustin Martin makes about the kind of figures that Michael Chiesa and Neil Magny both are right now in the welterweight division. Uh, if Kiesa wins this thing, he'll have won four in a row. If Magny wins this thing, he will have won four in a row. Both these guys approaching top contender status at 170 pounds, Ben, and yet, and yet, if there's bad news here for Michael Kiesa and Neil Magny, aside from the fact that they're going to be in the middle of a Max Holloway, Conor McGregor sandwich uh, with the Wednesday fight fight time here for this event, the bad news is the welterweight title is spoken for, at least for the time being, we think, uh, with Kamara Usman apparently going to do the damn thing with Gilbert Burns in their rescheduled title title fight. And you still got Leon Edwards and Kamzat Shemaev getting rescheduled, preparing to do their damn thing together. The winner of that fight might well come out to be the top contender for the winner of Usman versus Burns. So no matter who wins this Michael Chiesa-Neil Magny fight, both guys are going to be sitting on respectable win streaks. Or whoever wins, I guess I should say, will be sitting on a respectable win streak. And yet, with these two likable, tough-as-nails, hard-nosed fighters, you get the feeling that no matter what happens on Wednesday, it'd be awful damn hard for one of these guys to cut the line and be a, be recognized as the top challenger here. We still got some business to take care of at welterweight. So no matter who wins this thing and who enjoys that four-fight win streak... You got to think they're got to be looking to run that thing to five, maybe six before they get a shot at the title. Yeah, I guess if you want to look at it on the bright side, they weren't even supposed to be the main event here. It was supposed to be the Leon Edwards comes out from my thing and then that fight drops out. And that's how you end up being the main event. Maybe if you're either one of these guys, you tell yourself, you know what? I'm just going to keep swimming in the wake of this fight that will never, ever, ever happen. And pretty soon 
when we're on our ninth attempt to rebook Leon Edwards and Kamzat Jumeirev, and by then I've won six or seven in a row, I just quietly put my hand up and be like, hey, by the way, I'm still here. I, I could fight for the title. Who knows? You know, because it is true, though, that this one, you you almost have to, even inside the MMA bubble, force yourself to pause and remember that it's happening. It's sandwiched yeah. between these two events. Maybe that didn't seem so bad before the whole week started, but after Saturday, where everybody, we come out of that one, and the two things everybody wants to talk about is this bullshit that we pulled with the Khabib announcement. And then Max Holloway setting records with how many times he managed to thump Calvin Cater about the head, chest, torso, leg area. All that stuff is right in front of everybody's minds right now. And then this Wednesday one kind of sneaks up on you in the middle of the week while everybody is also like so entrenched in their pre-Conor McGregor hype modes. It's it's really hard to get any sort of attention for yourself there. But I guess it, it it does have to be a little bit encouraging to those guys to be like, all right, look, you got the spotlight all to yourselves now, at least on this Wednesday one, whereas before you were just on the undercard of a fight, of a fight night thing we were going to forget about. Yeah, and, you know, aside from Michael Kies and Neil Magny, I mean, you got Roxanne Modafferi on this thing. You got Tyson Nam on this thing, Tom Breeze. Uh, on the uh, on the prelims against Omar Medov. But uh, outside of Kiesa versus Magny, there is not a ton of stuff going on here that's going to draw any eyeballs to this thing. So not only are they getting this kind of uh, weird Wednesday fight where they're right in between Max Holloway and then Conor McGregor versus Dustin Poirier, but they're also kind of the only thing going there. So I guess you could see that as a big opportunity or as a thing that's – that as uh, – Dalton Martin points out here a thing that's destined to get lost kind of in the shuffle here. Yeah. Next question this week comes to us from Patrick Milder, who writes, Holloway did no hard sparring and looked incredible. A lot of research supports that the hard sparring is where a large amount of CTE in fighters comes from. As an amateur MMA fighter and a neuroscientist, it gives me hope uh, for the future of MMA. Is my optimism misplaced? Uh, I don't necessarily think it's misplaced. Um, Like, I think as our understanding of brain science continues to improve and fighters see performances like, like Max Holloway put on on Saturday against Calvin Cater. I like, I think you're probably going to see more people start to think twice about the hard sparring that they've been doing in a sport where like that, that used to be very much in vogue as we all found out, you know, from, from Stephen Morocco's story about Spencer Fisher, which we'll talk a little bit more about here in a minute. But like back in the kind of blood and guts pioneer days of MMA, I think you saw a lot more hard sparring. I think it takes a lot more different approaches at this point. I think that there are that people all approach this kind of differently. But I remember doing a story a long time ago about fighter recovery and fighter brain uh, health. And I talked to several different fighters, one of them being Michael Chiesa for that story. And I was kind of amazed uh, that all the guys that I talked to seemed to be uh, cognizant of their brain health, and that many of them at least told me that they were taking what they considered to be significant steps in training to try to limit the kind of hard, repetitive concussion blows that they that they would face. And, you know, when they did feel like they, they got dinged or something in, in uh, practice, that they would take some time off and, and 
not come back until they were feeling like those symptoms passed and everything like that. Uh, maybe you are, in fact, moving toward a day when hard sparring is is more or less a thing of the past, especially for someone like Max Holloway, who has this high-level experience, has as much uh, you know in-cage experience as he does. And I believe, as he said at the post-fight press conference, man, you've only got one brain. And we've all done enough training. We've all done enough sparring. We all know how to throw punches. We all know how to slip punches. Kind of what's the point? I don't know. Is this, could you see this being a wave of the future in what is essentially kind of a copycat sport where if one person is doing something that seems very effective, uh, it has a tendency to to have a ripple effect where other people start doing the same thing? Or is this just going to be kind of like a, a scattershot technique? Some guys will take advantage. Some guys won't. Well, I mean, maybe a little of both, because I think you're right that this is a copycat sport. And when people see you being successful one way and you're telling them this is how I'm doing it, that will convince people who would not have considered it better than anything else would. Like when they see somebody looking like, hey, he's been through some some tough fights and the years and the miles don't seem to be catching up with him the same way. What's he doing? That's the kind of thing that will convince them to take a second look. I think, though. It's not a one-size-fits-all approach because I think a lot depends on stylistically what you do and your experience level. And Max Holloway at this point, he's been a pro for a little over 10 years. He's been in the big fights, been in those long five-rounders, a whole bunch of them, been in multiple title fights. And I agree with him that he does not need to go out there and do a whole bunch of hard sparring rounds to get ready for a fight. He he needs to get himself in shape, get his timing down, and he can do all that without getting hit in the head by his teammates. But other people who might have a different style, like if they're more of a grappling first style, they might feel like, okay, I need the hard grappling rounds and I need to put myself in those situations that I expect to find myself in the fight just to get my muscle memory down and to make sure I stay sharp and all those things. And and maybe they're not taking the same amount of damage doing it that way. Also, guys who just have different experience levels might need it. Or if you're facing a guy who does something very specific and you want to get somebody who can mimic that in sparring, then maybe you do need more sparring rounds to, to get yourself ready for that and to feel like you've seen it by the time you get in the cage with him. So I think there could be a lot of different factors. I also think a big factor here is that Max Holloway is in a position with his career and the way his camp runs where he can decide like, Hey, you know what? I've done enough sparring. I don't need to go out here and get hit in the head a bunch. And so this, for this training camp, here's what we're going to do. We've seen fighters where it goes both good and bad to be the boss of your own training camp. But this is one where the guy being able to say, here's how we're going to do it this time. And here's my reasoning for doing it. And it, it works out well. And some other fighters might be in a position where depending on who their coaches are or what the structure of their camp is, where they aren't the ones who get to make that call. Like, they might say, hey, I don't feel like I need a whole lot of sparring here. And then the guy's, like, standing there with a a clipboard being like, no, I got you down for five rounds today. Get in there. And so it just it doesn't necessarily work the same for everybody. But I do think that hopefully we're coming to a point where we can challenge some of those assumptions that we've had in MMA. Because you're right, like, people used to think the only way to do it was, like, the Militich can't put on the, the... four ounce gloves and a racquetball court and beat the shit out of each other. And in this way, you will be prepared to go in there in the UFC. And we now know like you might be doing a whole lot more damage to yourself than you are adding any sort of benefit at that point. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to put this one next from Dan Alexander, who writes, I almost couldn't send this as it throws up so many questions about MMA 
and more to the point, the UFC. I read MMA Fighting's superb piece on Spencer Fisher, The Cost of Being the King. It's gut-wrenching on every level. A former fighter suffering the consequences of, as it's often called, uh, leaving it all in the octagon. Shady or even supportive UFC tactics uh, to minimize bad publicity. Dana White now shrugging his shoulders like he's either A, playing the tough, heartless boss man again, or B, scared of a possible lawsuit, or C, genuinely feels that this is the risk that fighters take. I can feel I feel conflicted now for an, even enjoying watching fights uh, in a way that in a way that I haven't since witnessing the physical consequences of Nigel Ben versus Michael Watson back in the day. Please discourse, guys, and talk me back off the ledge. Uh, ben, we talked about this at length on the Wednesday live chat last week and a little bit on the uh, Friday Power Hour over on the Patreon page. But Stephen Morocco, who has been chasing this story about Spencer Fisher for a long time, uh, published it last week. It's It's a great story, although... I agree with Dan Alexander, pretty pretty heart-wrenching and, and pretty harrowing for longtime fans of the sport to read, but I encourage everybody to go check it out, kind of about the aftermath of Spencer Fisher's fighting career, and as a fan favorite and a UFC favorite and a guy who was known to put on these, these hard-hitting, action-packed fights, now is dealing with the fallout of you know a, a lot of brain trauma as a guy who's who's only in his early 40s and is... is uh, you know, suffering in many ways, I think, as a result of this professional fighting career. And and I think in his own mind, maybe doesn't have a ton to show for it financially. And uh, had been one of these guys that the UFC had on the payroll in the same, at least in theory, in the same kind of role as like a Matt Hughes or a Chuck Liddell, who were ambassadors for this sport after they retired. Uh, but it kind of seems like Spencer Fisher wasn't doing a lot of that, that he was getting these paychecks and he wasn't being asked to uh, to do a lot of that ambassador stuff. And even he was sending messages to the UFC kind of saying, hey, what do you want me to do? Like, what, what, do, you, what do you need me to do to get this money? And then uh, maybe coincidentally, maybe not, after the UFC was sold for billions of dollars to Endeavor, uh, the UFC let Spencer Fisher know that they would, would no longer be keeping him on the payroll or requiring his services, whatever those services happen to be. So uh, it's a complicated story. It's a, uh, it's an important story and it's one, uh, that I think deserves a little bit of time here on, on the, on the proper. Um, and man, I, every time I think about this stuff and every time we get one of these stories about a, one of these, I don't want to even say aging because Spencer Fisher is a young man, but I guess former fighter, retired fighter who is now struggling with the, the physical receipts for having a, a long and, and, uh, hard nosed MMA career. Every time I just go back to fighter pay because some of these sports, some of these contact sports like MMA, like the NFL, you know, in, in some ways like hockey, Dana White is not totally far from the truth when he says that, uh, it's quote unquote part of the gig. Although, uh, that may be kind of a, a crass way to put it in some people's eyes for the billionaire or multimillionaire owner of the UFC to, to say that about these independent contractors. But if you're entering into a sport like that, where you know you are essentially mortgaging your own future health for either for your family and your children or for whatever the glory is in the moment, at least the guys who participate in these other mainstream sports are getting half the money 
half the revenue that their talents produce for the company. Now in the UFC, we know that the fighters are getting somewhere between 15 and 20%. And you have so many of these people that get to the end of their fighting careers and they look back and they just don't have much for it, man. And like, uh, I would love to say that, that if you, if you show up broke after a UFC career, it's because you mismanaged your finances, but it doesn't even necessarily seem like that's true. It seems like some of these people are sustaining this damage, suffering this fallout, and the company is just keeping 80% of the money, which just continues to rub me the wrong way. I don't know where you are at on any of this stuff. I think you have a pretty good idea where I'm at on a lot of this stuff after all this time. But, you know, you mentioned the Spencer Fisher being paid by the UFC and yet not doing really any of the ambassador stuff. Not because they just weren't asking him to. We didn't have stuff that they were trying to get him to do. And he was saying, like, hey, I'll, I'll earn my money. Tell me what to do. And... It made me think of uh, the Oliver Stone Nixon movie, where there's a moment where one of uh, Nixon's lawyers is talking to uh, uh, one of the Watergate burglars who is blackmailing him. And he asks, like, where do you get the temerity to blackmail the president of the United States? And he replies, that's not the question. The question is, why is he paying me? And that's kind of the, the question I would like to hear put to the UFC is, why were you paying Spencer Fisher? If you think it's all just part of the gig and this is just how it goes and brain trauma comes with it and all the fighters know that or at least should know it and uh, you don't bear any responsibility for it or anything, why were you paying him $5,000 a month for, as a company who, as we've seen, likes to keep as much of the money as possible? Like, what was that about? What, what was your reasoning for why you needed to pay him that money, at least until right after the sale was finalized and then you didn't need to keep doing it anymore? I suspect the answer is we wanted to keep that stuff quiet because we didn't want it arising as a potential issue where potential buyers and investors would see this and think, wait a minute, are these guys facing an NFL kind of concussion lawsuit down the road? Do I want to get involved in that business? You want to keep that quiet maybe until after you get through the sale and then you're not so worried about it anymore. That would seem like the most logical answer, but I'd like to hear the answer when somebody puts that to them. And I understand, too, how this can affect the way you see it, like the way Dan Alexander puts it. Because when you have that stuff in the back of your mind, you're thinking about the Spencer Fisher stuff, uh, the the story he told, what his life is like now as a 44-year-old man. And then you're going and you're watching Max Holloway just put an absolutely hellacious beating on Calvin Cater. And how are those two not going to be kind of close together in your mind, especially after you just read the Spencer Fisher story and then you just see this fight? And while you're celebrating one guy's just tremendous output and another guy's tremendous toughness, there's got to be another part of you that's going, wait a minute, but I also know that there's this other side to it. And is anybody looking out for Calvin Cater 10 or 15 or 20 years from now? Is he just going to end up in the same type of situation? And, and you don't know. I mean, that's, that is one of, the, it seems like the built-in conflicts with this sport. And I don't yeah. blame anybody who feels like it's, it gets tougher and tougher to watch it and enjoy it the same way, the more you know about it. Yeah. And the, uh, the quote from Dana White saying it's just part of the gig, uh, honestly, pretty shocking thing to say, despite the fact that in many ways it's, it's common sense in many ways, you know, anybody who has been around fight sports would look at the sport would look at the action of the sport and say, well, yeah, of course, of course you're going to uh, suffer these consequences if you participate in this sport, but like whether or not it's obvious that there's going to be some, some brain trauma here. I don't necessarily think that's the point. I think that the point is it needs to be worth your while. It needs to be, you need to be fairly compensated if you're going to participate in a sport where that's the, the end result for at least some people. And for the UFC president, to say that on the record, 
in a way that like the UFC has never really said it that way before. Right. Uh, this, they this, said that it's a million that, times safer than all these other sports where people are getting hit. Right. In the head. Right. Despite the fact that they are participating in these brain studies with the Cleveland Clinic, where uh, you know fight promoters are at least giving the impression that they're doing more to to try to keep people educated and and be on the cutting edge of the science than maybe some of the other contact sports are. For the UFC president to come out and just say it's part of the gig, emphasis on the word gig. By the way, <laughs> since <laughs> not part of the are, career, uh, yeah, right. Independent contractors, and we've heard UFC officials say before, this isn't really a career; it's more of an opportunity. Well, if you have that opportunity and you're coming out on the back end of it with debilitating health issues, if I were a fighter, I would want to start asking questions about where are the rest of that money is going, yeah, and and why you're asking me to risk my health for less than 20% of the revenue that that labor produces. Well, also don't forget that in the same comments where he said it's part of the gig, he also put himself in that conversation by saying anybody who did this when they were younger, myself included, has brain issues, which, man, you, you're a boxing hobbyist, Dana White. Like You may have sparred in the gym recreationally. You did martial arts for fun, the way a lot of us have. But that's not the same thing as fighting 17 times for the UFC, like Spencer Fisher did, and making a living of it and being in those hard sparring days at the Militich camp. Those guys aren't in there for fun. Those guys are in there doing a different thing. Don't put yourself next to those guys. You didn't do that. You, you, you weren't about that life the same way they were. You're in there bar- boxing in a gym uh, as, as a, a hobbyist, a, a guy who, like a martial arts enthusiast. That is not the same thing as fighting for money in a cage with Tiago goddamn Alves like Spencer Fisher did. All right, I do want to squeeze this one in from Jop Stam, who writes, I love Carlos Condit as much as the next guy, unless that guy is GSP after UFC 154. And I do respect Matt Brown a lot as well. They had a great fight, and it was great to see Condit put in some quality time in the cage. Uh, it reminded me how much fun a fight can be when you know the two fighters well and their background too. I know that you've talked about this many times already, but there are just too many generic bodies in the UFC right now. How to fix this? More background videos? More random facts presented by the commentators? Fewer events? I remember watching these UFC documentaries before pay-per-views. Not the embedded ones, but the ones that showed Tim Boach riding on his lawnmower and BG, BJ Penn. And lifting rocks underwater and George St. Pierre uh, running through Montreal. Maybe they should bring those back. Or maybe I'm just getting old and nostalgic when I see Condit win. Uh, peace. So, yeah, this was good. I thought, like, a, you know, it, it's not going to get the headlines, obviously, that the Max Holloway victory got in the main event of the UFC's debut on ABC. But to have Carlos Condit and Matt Brown, a couple of guys uh, who are either in their 40s or pushing 40s, respected and well liked veterans of the sport come out here and, and and put on an entertaining three-round fight. Carlos Condit ultimately wins by unanimous decision, 30-27s across the board. Matt Brown took a little bit of issue with that scoring, although he conceded that uh, he wasn't going to argue the the end result, just thought it maybe should have been a little closer, should have been a 29-28. But then, like, I always, I always feel like it warms my heart a little bit to see, especially in these last two fights for Carlos Condit, for him to go out there and uh, and look like a guy who very much belongs there deserves to be there and is still uh you know able to get w's at the highest level yeah as far as the question about how do you get these guys to stand out a little more i mean i will say going a few weeks without a ufc event really made it a lot easier to get your anticipation levels up for this one didn't it it did indeed absence makes the heart grow fonder as they say yeah and you know the the 
Saturday afternoon kind of thing after you haven't had a few, uh, you, after you've gone a few weeks without any sort of fights, and you're like, okay, I'm getting, I'm getting into this whole like, here come some fights, and it's been a while, and I remember what it was like to look forward to them and feel like you not only had time to take a breath between uh, UFC events, but you had time to really look ahead and you had time to to miss it a little bit, you know, like, yeah. you, but. I, to some extent, I wonder what if it's even of use for us talking about how that might change the way a lot of these people feel about the UFC events if they would do fewer events and give us a little bit more time between events because they're obviously not going to do that. Like that's right. that's just not the way we're headed. I mean, here we are headed into a week where we got one on Wednesday and one on Saturday. <laughs> like whatever value we might have felt was added by taking some time off and giving us a chance to get hyped up for the UFC events again, they're going to go right back to the same old schedule. So I don't know. I, it seems to me like as much as we like fans and media people keep asking ourselves this question about how do you get more people to stand out and not just be interchangeable bodies. I don't get the sense that the UFC is asking themselves that question at all. I think that they're very fine with it being interchangeable bodies and it just being a wall of content that they're pushing out all the time. I think that that is by design and that is, that is how they want it. And that's how I think that they feel like they are going to be the most profitable is if you don't have all these people who you're building up in the superstars who then want to turn around and play hardball negotiations with you. I think they like it just, uh, it's a, it's a conveyor belt of, talent ready to get in the cage and scrap somebody TBA versus TBD on this date. And that's all you need to know. Yeah. Uh, Dana White was on Stephen A. Smith's show on ESPN this week. And Stephen A. Smith at one point asked him like, who's, who do you want to mention? He was yeah. like, whose names do you want to mention? He really went out of his way too. He was like, this yeah. is your chance. This is the opportunity. Yeah. Say somebody other than Conor McGregor. Here it is. I'm serving it up for you. Go ahead. Yeah, and Dana White like mentioned Kevin Holland uh, under the auspices of him winning five fights last year during the the pandemic, uh, and said he's an up and coming star for the UFC, and that was kind of it. And then he circled right back of, around to Conor McGregor. Yeah, yeah, he did. So I, I think you're right. I don't get the impression that UFC is is sweating it. I don't even think that's their business model. Yeah. right now. So uh, so there you have it. In any case, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, or concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. I said at the top of the show, you got to consider what Max Holloway did in the main event of this UFC on ABC show. One of the great individual performances of recent memory. Obviously, he gets the lopsided unanimous decision victory over Calvin Cater. Those two guys also get fight of the night honors, so an extra $50,000 in their pockets. People had talked about Max Holloway's most recent successful performances as this thing where maybe he starts a little slow. But then he becomes like a snowball rolling downhill and it just gets the snowball gets bigger and bigger and there's more momentum and uh, the opponent just can't really compute it, can't really process it. And eventually Max Holloway just runs you over. He took out the slow start for sure and just started at a breakneck pace against Calvin Cater 
and then kept it up over 25 minutes. A really astonishing pace from start to finish of this fight, which I think reached its fever pitch during the time when Max Holloway is looking at the broadcast team and telling them he's the best fighter in the UFC, the best boxer in the UFC, and ducking three or four Calvin Cater's punches and then firing back, seemingly without really even looking, on some Anderson Silva-type shit. What did you think of the Max Holloway performance, and especially getting it done on this stage in the UFC's debut on ABC network television, it seemed like this was exactly what everyone needed, not just the UFC, but also Max Holloway at this stage in his career, like to go out there and look this good, to put this many levels between himself and Calvin Cater, in my opinion, reinvigorates all of the conversations around Max Holloway, including a third fight with Alexander Volkanovsky. But what did you think of the performance? Yeah, honestly, before this one, I would have said, hey, it's going to be really hard for him to convince people that we need to see a third Volkanovsky fight when he's 0-2 in the first two. And it feels like people were ready for the division to move on and uh, get some other contenders in there and have have a chance. But you're right that when he goes out there and just absolutely styles on a guy like Halvin Cater, who is pretty damn good and who, you know, no slouch at all in that division right now. And the the... I was surprised, too, at what you said about how he usually doesn't start at that kind of pace. And he got to work right away in this one. But also just seems so well prepared for everything that Calvin Cater had and everything that Calvin Cater does well. And he took some hard shots from Calvin Cater. that The kind that you see other featherweights take and you definitely notice that they just got rocked. And Max Holloway was just no-selling those punches. It may, it, I think it made it look at times like Calvin Cater had no chance to get back in the fight. Honestly, one of the things... Like, I know people are going to come out of a fight like this and go, hey, why wasn't it stopped? Why didn't the referee stop it sooner? Why didn't the corner stop it sooner? And I, I get that, especially when you get into the fifth round and you, you should be, especially as the corner, asking yourself the question, of, are you just sending the guy out to get beat up? And right. to, to, no, to no benefit for anybody. Is it, is it worth it? But especially when you look at it from the referee's point of view, you're looking for those moments to say, okay, this fight, he's not intelligently defending himself anymore. He's not in this fight anymore. And you didn't really see too many of those moments because you'd see Max yeah. Holloway pour it on him and Calvin Cater would fire back with something and, and sometimes land and land a good, hard, clean shot. Uh, a good sign that he's still in that fight and that he's still fighting back and he still has something. And Max Holloway would just act like it didn't even happen. And yeah. I, like to have all those things, to, to have that kind of chin and that kind of toughness, but also to be able to, to mix all the attacks up. I think that was one of the big differences between them, honestly, was that Calvin Cater goes out there and he has a smaller set of stuff offensively that he wants to do. And Max Holloway can do so many different things. And just overwhelm you with just all, all the different looks he's showing you, all the different things he's giving you to worry about. And it, I, when they were talking about how he'll sometimes get people in that and get them stuck against the fence and just start throwing them at the, and he melts them. And that's a great word for it because that is kind of what it, he's just overwhelming you like at sensory level with just so many different things that he can do. And he did that here and he did it to such an extent that when you, especially, when you can have a full-on conversation with the commentators while not worried about the other guy punching you back, stuff like that tends to get people's attention. And you you go into the fight thinking, all right, even if he beats this guy, we're not about to turn right around and talk about Volkanovsky Holloway 3. But then the way he beats him and the 
the emphasis, the, the exclamation point that he puts on it, you come out of it and you do find yourself going, well, how do you, how do you tell him no after some fights like this? If, if Volkanovsky comes out of that Ortega fight and he's still a champion, how, what are you going to do? You're going to just keep feeding Max Holloway your contenders so you can beat the shit out of all of them. And so there's, there's absolutely nobody left. That typically isn't the thing that the UFC likes to do. Like he, he's making a case both with like substance and style that it, it's really hard to ignore. Yeah, especially since the UFC 251 fight, the split decision, the second Holloway-Volkanovsky uh, fight was so close. I think you can, you know, uh, you can make the case that, Call- that Holloway should have won it. And if that had happened, then they'd be one and one, and then you'd be in a much different situation. So I think especially on the heels of this performance against Calvin Cater, I am more than willing to watch Holloway Volk- Volkanovsky three. Like I don't. Uh, yeah, I mean the question is though, what happens if you do go Holloway Volkanovsky three and Holloway wins it, and then it's two? Are we in a best of five at that point? Yeah, maybe so. I don't know. Uh, what about the notion of this? Whether or not this fight should be considered a fight of the year candidate, which is a question that we got a bunch of listener mail about. I think people are interested in that kind of a discussion. Uh, this was obviously a tremendous fight, and I think both guys did uh, impressive stuff. It's just that the stuff Calvin Cater was doing had a lot more to do with, uh, you know, his ability to to keep coming and coming back and firing off punches even when he was taking this hellacious beating. Do you buy that this is a fight of the year candidate, despite the fact that it was incredibly one sided, or do you think that this is just more of a uh, an all time great individual performance by one guy who showed that? you know, he's just at a different level than the other guy that he was in there with. Yeah, I tend to think that a fight of the year has to be more competitive than that. I I do think, though, that maybe there should be some sort of different category for this because it is, on both sides, sort of a performance of the year. On Max Holloway's side, definitely an incredible performance. And on Calvin Cater's side, you're watching it and going, how the hell has he taken this? Not only taking it, but taking it and still managing to fire back, still managing to land some punches here and there. Like physically, it's one thing to do. That's hard enough to do. Just to to take that kind of beating physically and to still be at least somewhat in the fight. But also mentally, to just not get broken through five rounds of that, to still be firing back, believing that maybe you have a chance to win, getting up off that stool and going into that fifth round, telling yourself something, telling yourself that you know that. you still got a chance that, you know, it's still worth going out there, taking the beating if you have to for any opportunity to land one. Like that's as difficult as it can be to watch sometimes. That is also a part of the appeal of this sport. Like the, the, that a guy can reach down and find that stuff in him in a seemingly hopeless moment like at a time yeah. when other people would have given up. I, like, there, there ought to be some sort of category for that, but I don't know if it's fight of the year. When you think about Max Holloway, a guy who's only 29 years old still at this point, and as we talked about earlier in the show, a guy who seemingly is trying to do the right thing to take care of his body and to ensure that he's able to have at least some longevity in this sport and maybe you know a more successful and comfortable life after it's over, I wonder what kind of signpost this will be in the career of Max Holloway, who is now 22-6 and six overall, snapped his two-fight losing streak to Volkanovski with this victory, and did it, as we said on the UFC's debut on this new network television platform, ABC. Uh, This feels significant to me, like a significant development in the career of Max Holloway, who had already, frankly, had a a fairly storied career. But like to put on this performance that brings you right back to the forefront of everybody's minds and 
leaves everybody coming away from it thinking, wow, Max Holloway looked better than ever. I don't, I haven't seen any ratings. I don't know what kind of, uh, crowd this drew with the weird time slot in the middle of the afternoon on ABC. But I wonder if it makes Max Holloway more of a, of a mainstream figure now in the UFC and a guy who could think about a rematch with Conor McGregor, a guy who could think about those, you know, kind of big money moves. If indeed he has to wait a while for another shot at the featherweight title, just because he's already lost twice to Volkanovsky, you know, you start having all these thoughts, obviously tempered by, uh, Holloway's previous attempt to move up to lightweight where he got beat by Dustin Poirier. But in your opinion, does this make Max Holloway more of a capital G guy in the landscape of the UFC, or at least return him to the status that he had a few years ago when we were all like, oh, Max Holloway is the odds-on favorite to be, you know, the heir apparent, the next superstar in the UFC, this young guy who's who's very talented, very easy to like, et cetera, et cetera. Did, did this rehabilitate or even put Max Holloway a step ahead of, of where he was before in your eyes, just in terms of like star power and the kind of fights that he can command now if he wants to? It ought to, right? Because especially if you put a guy like that as your main event on network TV, what else could you ask him to do? He's a guy who can go out there and show the full range of MMA skill sets. He can sit down at the press conference afterwards and talk to you about it and have intelligent things to say. He's a good dude and a good dad who's not going to go out there and embarrass you outside the cage. Like All those things that you would think that you would be looking for out of a guy who you want to get behind as a promoter, he's got all those pieces there. So yeah. what else could you ask for? All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round number two. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week? Well... I'm sure that this being a Conor McGregor fight week, that we're gonna we're gonna end up talking about that man some. Um, but I just gotta highlight some of his comments in a recent ESPN interview, Chad. Okay, um, <laughs> I know what's coming here. I think for one thing, um, Conor McGregor at some point in this interview seems to make the case that maybe he is still actually kind of really the champion because the yeah. ceremony did not take place. The post fight, taking the belt, putting on the guy thing after his fight with Khabib did not take place because Khabib fled the cage by which he means leapt out of the cage to go attack Conor McGregor's teammate, Dylan Danis. Yeah. Setting off Mike the whole Pence melee. did not declare Khabib Nurmagomedov the new lightweight champion. Yeah. So. so there's that. And then there's this quote. I think he's afraid to fight me. That's for damn sure. I don't blame him. I know exactly what to face. I fought the best of him that night. He fought the worst of me that night. He knows it. I knows it. I know it. His team knows it. I have the answer to destroy that man. He can pull the wool over people's eyes only for so long. But it is what it is. I know there's surrounding things regarding the family. If he's retired, then that's it. I wish him well. But I am who I am, and I'm at the top, and time will show. Chad, are you fucking kidding me? It's not enough. It's not enough that we're going to be asked to entertain this whole idea of like we're going to do another McGregor Khabib fight. If he wins, the UFC's already talking about this McGregor Poirier fight as if we're really only interested in one outcome and only planning for one outcome here. And you know the pressure is going to be on to try to do that rematch. But on top of all that, we got to listen to this. I would regard it as a speculative fiction. 
that Conor yeah, McGregor that's, is that's spinning. That's post-factual right there. <laughs> About that's a post-factual interview from Conor McGregor, who it's still months on now, is acting like nobody else saw that fight. Yeah. <laughs> like, we didn't watch it. He's just telling us about it. Yeah. We, just, we all, all we can do is take his word for how it went. Right. The only thing we have to go on is the account of Conor McGregor on how things went. Well, ben, my are you fucking kidding me is Conor McGregor related as well. Did you see, first of all, the video of him arriving at the hotel? Yes. That was out today. Uh, which, speaking of like post-apocalyptic world... Looks like a scene out of a damn science fiction movie where a bunch of dudes <laughs> essentially wearing spacesuits are crowding around this Bentley or whatever it was, yelling things about Conor McGregor, pumping their fists uh, like something out of 28 Days Later or something. And then McGregor gets out of the Bentley wearing his mask, carrying Conor Jr., not wearing a shirt and just like strides into the hotel are you fucking kidding me? I couldn't decide if I thought it was glorious or terrifying, the scene on the ground in Abu Dhabi. And then McGregor's going to post these pictures to his Twitter Twitter feed, which leads you to believe maybe instead of staying at the fighter hotel, Connor is is on a yacht. Okay. Like, That's safe, right? That is, so you can really social that, distance well, on a yacht. Yeah, and you know how into water safety he is. Right. So you got that. But he's like anchored off the coast of the Etihad Arena here. And the pictures make it look like he's meditating on this multi-million dollar yacht right right off the, the coast there. And I'm just I just looked at it and I just said, Are you fucking kidding me, man? It's like the the Conor McGregor brand never stops. Meditating on your multi-million dollar yacht with your shirt off. About to maybe maybe take a dinghy, I don't know, to the uh to the fight on Saturday night. Maybe. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? There is something great though about what seeing all the guys in like hazmat suits and then a shirtless dude strolls. It's like yeah. if in piles out of the car. It'd be like in the final act and like outbreak and Dustin Hoffman, everybody running around in those suits, and if like Fabio just strolled in wearing jeans and no shirt. Just yeah. like long flowing locks in the breeze, just not giving a fuck. Got his mask on though, so he's good. All right, let's get to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Jed, last week leading up to this big meeting between UFC President Dana White and still, as we are led to believe, current UFC lightweight champion Khabib Nurmagomedov, White told us it was going to be a very simple conversation. A five-minute yes no. conversation, a yes or no answer in the end. And then we were told, tune in 3 p.m. Eastern. 1 p.m. in the One True Time Zone on ABC, the start of the UFC's Fight Night broadcast, and Dana White will reveal the contents of that conversation. We saw the video where they go into the closed door meeting. They, they close the door in our face, just the two of them in the room. Khabib's manager is still stuck outside for some reason. Seems, really seems like he'd want to be in that meeting. Kind of seems like one of your raison d'etre, you might say, as a manager, is to be in that room, but fine. They're going to sit down, just Dana and Khabib, two guys, and they're going to figure this thing out, and then Dana's going to show up on TV and tell us, is it a yes, is it a no? And then, 
When he stands there cage side with John Anik, here's what we get. Quote from Dana White. Basically, the way that he feels right now is he's accomplished everything he set out to accomplish. He thought that Oliveira looked really good in his last fight against Tony Ferguson. So next Saturday, we got the McGregor-Poirier fight and Chandler and Hooker on there. His words to me were, I'm going to watch this fight. He said, I would never tie up the division, hold the belt, keep the belt away from anybody else. These guys do something spectacular, show me something spectacular, and make me want to come back and fight. So I have a feeling that if somebody delivers, it could be on the co-main event or the main event. And like I said, he thought Oliveira looked good. So two fights coming up. If these guys can do something special, Khabib will fight them. What? What? What is that? Well, first of all, the notion that Habib is coming back to fight anyone besides Conor McGregor is farcical, right? Because why would he? If he's got nothing else to, to prove, nothing else to accomplish, the only reason to come back would be to make a bunch more money and with a fight that he thinks he could easily win. And the only fight available that fits that bill is Conor McGregor. If Dustin Poirier wins, I have a very hard time uh, seeing Habib come back for a rematch with Dustin Poirier, another guy that he beat fairly soundly in one of his final times out before retirement. I don't know why Dana White keeps mentioning Charles Oliveira. Yeah. Uh, because you mention him once, that's fine. You mention him twice, and I start thinking, did Habib really say that? <laughs> and then, like, the thing that makes me most suspicious, I guess, of this is that, as you mentioned, it's not Habib bringing us this news. It's Dana White paraphrasing what Habib told him. And that paraphrasing sounds an awful lot like everybody better tune in to UFC 257, the pay-per-view event next Saturday that we're trying to charge 70 bucks for to see if somebody can do something spectacular that will make Habib Nurmagomedov want to come out of retirement to defend the lightweight title. Yes. So you're telling me that you came out of this conversation with Habib and the thing that you got out of it was a sales pitch for next week's pay-per-view? Yes. Really? Because that sounds like more like some UFC shit than some shit Habib would say. It seems like when you go through this statement, the the statement starts in a very different way than it ends. Basically, the way that he feels right now, he's accomplished everything he set out to accomplish. Now that, I believe, Khabib said. Yep, still retired. <laughs> I believe that he sat down and he said something along those lines to you. By the end, it's like Dana White has talked himself into, <laughs> if these guys can do something special, Habib will fight them. I... That doesn't seem like what you were saying at the start of the statement. And what's really surprising to me is you must have known that this was all you had to give us before you started hyping up this announcement. Like you had the ESPN MMA Twitter out here being like the decision 2.0 with like Khabib next to LeBron James. And I, I remember seeing that like in the morning on Saturday morning, I'm being like, wait a minute, didn't one of those kind of go badly? Like, yeah. didn't, I don't re remember that being regarded as a big PR win for LeBron James, but okay, fine. That's Maybe that's neither here nor there. But then you, you hype it up as this big thing when you know that all you the best you can tell us is maybe if these things happen. And then by the end, he's talking something like, if these guys do something special, Habib will fight them. Which I don't think that that is... Nothing about what you said here leads me to believe that he sat there in a meeting and he said, if they do something special, I will fight. Like, the whole thing of, like, spectacular. They do something spectacular, something special. It seems intentionally vague because that could mean almost anything. Is it, yeah. like, a, is any knockout victory, does that count as spectacular? If both these fights go to the decision, are we going to still find a way to call it spectacular? 
It just it the the way that it's phrased here is like Khabib said he's going to be watching. Are you going to be watching? Now, like, it's this thing that we're, we're intentionally hanging over this event so that it has this other implication hanging on the whole thing and trying to just turn it into a temporary sales pitch for the next pay-per-view that you have up on the lineup. At least when LeBron James did the decision, there was a decision. Yeah, he told you what it was going to be. It was yeah, clear at the end. He was taking his talents to South Beach. This was a commercial like they, I guess we should know better. Man. Yes, like, that's we should all know us. better than than to expect anything else. But like you, you tell us you're going to have this big announcement. You tell us that it's going to be a yes or no conversation, and then what you show up with cage side and your conversation with John Anik is like a ham fisted commercial for UFC 257, which we already knew we were going to get. We knew we were going to get commercials for UFC 257 throughout this thing. So I don't know that we needed another one. And and I, in addition to that. I wonder if it's even fair to, well, I know it's not fair to Dustin Poirier, who were just, were acting like they already had that fight. Yes. And that Conor McGregor has won it and is ready to to challenge Habib Nurmagomedov. I don't even know if it's fair to uh, Michael Chandler, Dan Hooker, like these guys who are going to be in the co-main event. At this point, it's ba- you basically made everything about UFC 257 about Habib Nurmagomedov. Like whoever wins the co-main event and main event fight on that card has to get on the mic, no matter how they won, no matter how spectacular the performance was, they have to get on the mic now and talk some shit about Habib and say, I'm ready, come come get you some. And it's just like, man, did we do we really have to? Can can't we just have a nice time at UFC two fifty seven and Conor McGregor returns and Michael Chandler has his first fight in the UFC and that's that? Do we really have to make it all about Habib? That just feels like it kind of undercuts what we're doing at UFC 257 a little bit. Yeah, but at the same time, it does seem like we've got these two lightweight fights lined up, and we don't know if the UFC lightweight champion wants to be lightweight champ anymore. And so, however these two things shake out, if it turns out that either the outcome or the the like the path we take to get to the outcomes those seem like they could have some sort of effect on whether or not he fights again. Like, if if Conor McGregor goes out there and knocks out Dustin Poirier, you know the pressure from the UFC, the pressure from his own management, is going to be immense on Khabib to do this fight one more time. Like, come on, man, get to 30-0, wouldn't that be nice? Beat this guy up again, make a ton more money for everybody, everybody goes home happy. And maybe there's some part of Khabib who's like, is he out there seriously still talking about this fight like nobody saw it? Maybe I do want to go back in there and beat that guy up again. Fled the cage. <laughs> like, it does seem like there there has some ability to impact what his decision might be, ultimately. Like, I, I kind of think that if Conor McGregor goes out there and he knocks out Dustin Poirier, I think there's a good chance that we see Khabib get in there. And just because the, there's so many people that have so much to gain from it, and they're not going to let him go easily. They, they're going to stay on him and keep trying to talk him into this, and maybe they, they eventually get their way here. But if something happens, a different outcome, or maybe just a lack of spectacularity attached to that outcome, and Khabib says, you know what, no, hey, listen, you guys need to hear me when I say that I'm retired, I'm not coming back. It's not like there's no chance that the UFC will just take the lightweight belt and be like, all right, we'll just put it on the guy who won that fight. Or we'll we'll match up the two winners from those fights and say that's the new lightweight champion. I mean, it seems like one way or another... 
this is going to be a big part of how this picture shapes up going forward. Yeah. I mean, if the MMA gods are listening, I guarantee you we're getting a draw and a no contest. How about a Dustin Poirier injury TKO victory? Yeah. Kicks Conor McGregor's calf or something, and he rolls over it on the thing, like just like the Michael Chandler had happened to him against Brent Primus, something like that. Man, I hope they don't pull the stool out from under Conor McGregor when he tries to sit down like they did Michael Chandler. The ultimate indignity. How long are we going to let Habib be the champion? Because as I've said numerous times on this show before, if I'm Henry Cejudo, I've got questions. Because <laughs> yes. they stripped Henry Cejudo of that belt basically by the time the post-fight press conference was over. Dana White was like, I guess we're looking for a new champion. Uh, Habib's been retired for some time now. And we're still playing these games, man. Yeah. Still playing these games. He retired in the cage in October after a win. Still the champion. And we still... He can say... that he Like... He says, maybe I'll fight, and we turn it into, um, you know, he's definitely going to fight these guys if they do something spectacular. Meanwhile, by the time Henry Cejudo's plane landed after his title defense and retirement afterwards, they'd already taken him off the website. Yeah. In any case, I guess we'll all be watching for spectacularity at UFC 257. That's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, it's Conor McGregor fight week. McGregor returns for the first time to the UFC cage since his victory over Donald Cerrone back in January of 2020 at UFC 246. He only spent 40 seconds in the cage for that welterweight bout. Previous to that, he hadn't fought since October of 2018. The much ballyhooed submission loss to Habib Nurmagomedov at UFC 229 that we've been talking about most of this show. He's going to face Dustin Poirier in a lightweight fight Saturday night at UFC 257. I guess the first thing I got to ask you, man, is whether or not you think McGregor fight week still has that magic. I know it's only Monday, but they were they were hyping this thing throughout the ABC card on Saturday. Conor McGregor's out there meditating on his yacht. He's carrying his son around the host hotel. He's talking about how Habib fled the cage. Haven't seen him put on a shirt yet. Does Habib or does Connor Fight Week still have that magic for you? It certainly still has some magic. I think maybe you lose a little something when you don't have it in a regularly accessible place like Las Vegas or New York City or something where you have a bunch of fans, you have a bunch of that immediate interaction with the public. When you have it out there at Fight Island in Abu Dhabi and it feels very secluded and like it might as well be happening on the moon. Like we just set up a special base for this to happen. Uh, that hurts you a little bit. And that's just kind of the sign of the times that we're living in and it can't be helped, I think. But the way that I notice it is that, you know, when you're a member of the MMA media, you go through about 51 fight weeks a year that nobody gives a shit about outside of your own little bubble. And then a Conor McGregor one rolls around and suddenly a whole lot of people who don't normally even notice that this sport is happening all take notice at once. And that that definitely is already happening. You can, you can feel that with this Conor McGregor fight week. So that part is still there. He still has that ability to reach like outside the MMA bubble, kind of transcend the sport and get the attention of people who normally don't give a shit. 
do you think Conor McGregor still has the juice as a fighter to you? Like I said, not, you know, the story of McGregor's recent MMA career has been inactivity. Only two MMA fights since defeating Eddie Alvarez at UFC 205 back in November of 2016. His only MMA fights have been Habib and Donald Cerrone. Now, obviously, he mixed in a... Uh, a boxing match against Floyd Mayweather Jr. in there and arguably made himself an even bigger star and definitely made himself a bunch more money. We just have barely seen this dude, man, for for like the last five years. We saw him get pretty much run over by Habib, and then we saw him for 40 seconds against Cerrone. Athletically, do you still see Connor as a as one of the top guys in this sport and a guy that like you're super interested to watch? It's hard to say without basically just guessing. Yeah. Because the truth is, everything we've seen throughout his body of work, I think it's can at times be really easy for people to forget that he is a good fighter. Because yeah. they just get caught up in the, you know, the $3 million fuck watch and things like that. Things of that nature. And you can talk yourself really easily into thinking that this guy is just some sort of uh, social media phenom that he's just a, a glorified version of the Paul brothers, you know, whoever those guys are. I think that you can make that mistake and forget that he actually got here by being a good fighter and by winning those big fights and those big moments. And at least there was a time when Conor McGregor was really fucking good at this fight. He's a two division UFC champion that you don't get there by accident, by just being all hype and no substance. But also we've seen so little of him. And just so little cage time recently that you still are left to kind of guess what he still has. Especially since that dude has been packing a lot of living outside the cage. You do have to wonder how that can... like Everything we've learned following this sport and following professional fighting suggests that if you're one of those dudes who really likes to party in between fights, one of these days you're going to show up and it will have all caught up with you at once. You just don't know if this is going to be the day. Does uh, does Conor McGregor like to party? That's I've never. I'm just saying, huh. only one of the dudes in this main event is going to be outside the Fontainebleau at 4 a.m. stomping on people's phones. I'm glad you brought that up because I was just going to say it's hard not to notice the almost diametrically opposed lifestyles here. Of Conor McGregor and Dustin Poirier, even if you just consider how they approach the sport, like in the broadest possible strokes, like they're they're similar stand up fighters. They want to go out there and, and punch other people in the face. Dustin Poirier is ten and two since his fight against Conor McGregor uh, that he lost way back at uh, UFC one seventy eight in September of two thousand fourteen, and for the for the majority of his most recent career. He's been out here fighting them hitters. Wins over Eddie Alvarez, wins over Anthony Pettis, wins over Justin Gaethje, wins over Max Holloway. That loss to Habib Nurmagomedov. Dustin Poirier is about that life. He's about this life. The the cage life. He's about the MMA life. Conor McGregor is about the MMA life. But he's also about the life where you have a watch where if you push a button, it opens a little picture of two people fucking. Does that give Dustin Poirier any kind of an edge here? Like you say, we're just guessing as to what Conor McGregor is going to bring to the cage. 
we all know goddamn good and well what Dustin Poirier is going to do and what kind of shape he's going to be in and the, the heart determination and fighting style that he's going to bring to this thing. I mean, that is true. And if you ask me, who would I rather be in the camp of the guy who has to show up and get in shape when he has a fight coming up or the guy who has just been consistently doing this and never seems like he ever gets out of shape and it just this is the only life that he does lead, then yeah, I'll take Dustin Poirier's side of that. But also, you don't know, Conor McGregor is 32. He has been on this whirlwind for years now. You, you feel like eventually it's going to have a cost, but you don't know if this is going to be the fight. They, that Conor McGregor could always show up there, and in those first three minutes of any fight, he's super fucking dangerous. Yep. He, he could go in there, he could convince Dustin Poirier to plant his feet and throw back, and he could land that left hand, and he could end it. He could, he could win almost any fight that way. You know, there's nothing saying that if you got a rematch with Khabib, he could always land that left hand. You you don't know. He he has that ability. I think especially he has that big fight experience. He has that ability to really show up under the spotlight. And that's a special kind of thing that has helped him become the superstar that he is, that he shows up in those big moments. And if you're Dustin Poirier, you've got to count on getting through that and getting to the other side of that. You get to like... We talked a little bit, I believe, on the Power Hour about how Dustin Poirier's plan for it makes you wonder if he is counting too much on his ability to go in there and take punishment against Conor McGregor. But I do think he's right that what he needs to do is make it a messy, grueling fight. Let's get into round four where you're hanging on Conor McGregor in the clinch and all that explosive energy has mostly been spent up and you're still there, he's still there, and you're whispering in his ear to ask him, like, is he about that life? Because yeah. like Dustin Poirier said, he's like, I don't have a backup plan in this. And he has all these other things that he can do and has been doing. And I, I am just doing this. And that's where I want to be. Is this guy going to get up off the silk sheets, get up off the yacht, come in here, and 20 minutes into a hard fight where you're both sweating and bleeding all over each other, does he still really want to be there? And that, if you're yeah. Dustin Poirier, that's got to be your hope, is that you get yourself there. Yeah. To Conor McGregor's credit, he looks like he's in tremendous shape walking around with his shirt off in Abu Dhabi. During the very short period of time that we got to see him in the cage in 2020 against Donald Cerrone, he was showing off some new wrinkles, hitting him with those shoulder strikes, throwing head kicks and whatnot, finishing off the cowboy in under a minute. But I do, I do agree that if, we're, if we get past, say, a round and a half of this thing, and Dustin Poirier is able to do anything to implement the kind of fight that he wants to have against Conor McGregor. I like his chances. If we get 20 minutes into this thing and, and Dustin Poirier is still there and he's hanging on Conor McGregor and Conor McGregor is sweaty and bloody and, and all the other things Dustin Poirier wants, pretty easy to like Poirier's chances here. By contrast, I think it's pretty easy to like McGregor's chances early, especially if Poirier is going to come out aggressive, try to get in his face and try to make it that kind of fight. What do you think happens here? I think one of two things. I think either you end up with a first round Conor McGregor victory or you end up in a long slog. And in it, the, the thing that I wonder about is I think back to the difference between Conor McGregor's first fight with Nate Diaz and the second fight with him. 
Because I think there was actually a lot of growth and kind of maturity from Conor McGregor as a fighter there. Because in the first fight, you saw him doing all the Conor McGregor stuff where he's throwing out all the big stuff and nailing Nate Diaz with some of it. And then kind of looking surprised when Nate Diaz is still standing there afterwards. And he expended a lot of that energy. And then when Nate really started to put it on him after that, it seemed like he panicked a little bit and got finished. But then in the second fight, there were those moments. Again, he looked good early on, looked like he was picking Nate Diaz apart. But then Nate gets into those later rounds and starts to wear on him, starts to try to get him in the clinch, starts to, to bring that fight into a close, messier, kind of high-pressure zone. And you could see that there were the moments where it looked like maybe it was going to happen again, that he was going to panic again and he was going to kind of crumble under that pressure. And he didn't. He managed to, to compose himself and to stay in the fight and make it to a decision and then... You know, the decision went his way, could have gone the other way. I think that you could be looking at either he lands that big left hand early on and he catches Dustin Poirier and puts him away again in the first round. And if he doesn't, then we could easily be looking at a five-round fight that goes to a decision and it could be close. Yeah. All right, let's do Just Saying Stuff and then we'll get out of here for this week. My Just Saying Stuff, it's not a happy one. It's not pleasant, but I did want to make sure that we commemorate the passing of MMA pioneer Paul Varlins, the polar bear, who that if you watched the early UFCs, the very earliest UFCs, you damn sure knew who Paul Varlins was in his fights against Cal Worsham and Tank Abbott, Mark Hall, Marco Huas, Dan Severin, later on, uh, Kimo Leopoldo at Ultimate Ultimate 96. The polar bear out there, all uh, six foot eight, 300 pounds of him one of the the colorful characters during the early stages of this sport passed away at the age of 51 due to uh, a fight with COVID-19. I know Paul Varlins had, had fallen on some hard times during the last few years of his life. He'd lost an eye for at least for a while. I think he was living in his car. Uh, but I'm just saying just very sad to see a guy like, like Paul Varlins, like who seemed to be legitimately kind of like tender hearted, nice guy, and an absolute wild man, frankly, in the cage during those early UFCs, uh, pass away at just 51 years years old. So uh, RIP to, to the polar bear this week, Paul Varlins, after we learned that he succumbed to COVID-19. Uh, well, Chad, my just saying this week, you notice that we were expecting a big highlight reel finish in the Joaquin Buckley-Alessio de Chirico fight. But yeah. we did not expect that finish to come from de Chirico. And he gets the, the head kick knockout here against Joaquin Buckley, who has gotten himself the, the notice with a head kick knockout. But then afterwards, gets kind of fired up and gets, like, mad, basically, saying about how one thing he doesn't like about this sport is how you only talk to the winner. And all this emphasis is played on the winner and not the loser of the fight, who, you know, you need both guys, and why don't they interview the loser as much as they do the winner? I'm just saying, I understand the sentiment. And I think yeah. it's, a, it's a respectable sentiment. I, I get what he's saying there. We do, I think, in this sport sometimes just say, we only remember the last fight and we loved you when you were knocking people out. But then when you get knocked out playing the same kind of game where it can happen to anybody, we suddenly think that you suck and you're overrated and we don't care about you. Fair point. Glad you highlighted that. However, this week I'm just saying... We have seen in the past why you don't go and stick a microphone in the guy's face right after he's been knocked out. Yeah. Because sometimes you're not doing that guy any favors right in that moment. Sometimes it's better to let him collect himself and talk to everybody when he's ready. Just saying. 
Usually it's a borderline idea to even interview the winner immediately <laughs> after. Just saying. Just saying. That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back all week over on the Patreon page Wednesday through Friday getting ready for UFC 257, Conor McGregor versus Dustin Poirier. Thanks for listening. As for right now, we are done. We are through. We are out. Now, I know you weren't crazy about the fuck watch, but I'm kind of left confused about what you want me to do with this watch that I had made for you where you you flip a button on it and obviously I don't have the money for an actual sexual act depicted there but I did get one of you sitting there quietly at your desk sitting on okay I do want that one okay. I definitely want that and I you know I had the same thought about Habib and I saw some people made a meme out of this over on Twitter but the baller move would be for Habib to get the same watch and when you press a button the little window opens and it's him choking out Conor McGregor okay. in there. Yeah. That'd be the that'd be the baller move. So it was either the, the coffee watch or they're, they're, they have one that's discounted that's just a hand job picture. And it's kind of sad, okay. honestly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean that's what separates the, the big money buyers from the from the small timers, I guess. There you go.